Testimonies of saving faith can be very powerful uh, in, in our lives. There's a picture you can see up there of uh, Solomon Correa. He gave a testimony at uh, a summer camp uh, last summer in uh, Mexico. And uh, he was one of five young people that I've told you guys about on, on several occasions that uh, he was in a, a car accident uh, Sunday evening, um, about seven o'clock at night, was head on with a, a semi truck. And these were the five kids that he was with. Um, so they were returning from a, a road trip of their lives, is what one of their fathers said. And um, this man uh, gave a testimony, Solomon did, uh, less than a year before he died. Uh, it was probably about uh, seven months before he died or so. And, and I want to read his testimony for you this morning. I know I put this in the Weekly Word. How many of you actually read this in the Weekly Word? A handful of you did. I know that some of you, it was a lot to read, just kind of bypassed it. That, that's okay. But I want to read it again because it's especially helpful. This testimony speaks how shortness of life that we have. And, uh, you know, even Andy, I'm not sure where Andy went. Uh, yeah, Andy, you, you talked just about how you, you understand the shortness of life. Pancreatic cancer and two years ago, and I remember you talking about just even two years, you're still amazed you're standing here today. And whether it's two months, as you said, or two years, it's God's grace in your life to continue staying. And we prayed for you this morning at prayer meeting that God would sustain your life, just to be with us longer. Well, Solomon was only 22 years old when he died in the car crash. That's January 22nd of 2022. 2023 is when he passed away. I just want to read this testimony he gave to some boys at a boys camp in Mexico. And this may take oh, eight minutes or so to read, but just wanting to catch his heart. He said, good morning, my name is Solomon. Today I want to share with you some of my testimony, which in reality is the testimony that Jesus Christ has done in my life and about how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. But I'd like to start out telling you a little bit about what it was like where I grew up and how it was that I heard the gospel. My dad killed someone in self-defense when he was 16 years old, if I'm not mistaken. And he fled to the United States for one year. Then he came back to Mexico. And the day he came back, they caught him and he was incarcerated for 10 years. When he got out, he was around 27 years old. And a few months after he got out, he met my mom a young girl of 17, and they married a few months later. So they decided to immigrate to the United States, both of them. And it was through that that I had the blessing of being born in the United States. But when I was a few months old, they brought me back to Mexico. And I grew up in a village called Arumbaro. I was raised there for 16 years, helping my dad in the fields, raising livestock and things like that. You might say I grew up in a Catholic home. My dad would say he's Catholic, but I don't even remember if my mom would accompany us to a Catholic church or not. But what I do remember are the two people who came to knock on the door of my house one day, Ivan and Leslie. They shared the gospel with my mom. At that time, my dad was in the States, and my mom showed interest. And so they started giving her a Bible study, and eventually the whole Ted Clark family started coming, and my mom decided to accept Jesus into her heart. That time I was around six or seven years old. I loved the Clarks to come to our house because they would give us things, and I liked that, the six or seven-year-old. But something I didn't like one bit was that my mom started spanking us, seeing the scriptural warrant for that. I was rebellious. I was very rebellious. So my mom had to spank me several times a day, 
And I still remember that I was always watched for the boxes that Priscilla would bring down because I knew that there could be some spanking sticks in those boxes. And I remember that I'd take them and hide them. And my mom caught me doing that several times, and things always went bad after that. My rebellion was so great, I didn't want to accept discipline in my life. But as time went on, my mom knew uh, my mom would always re- make us read our Bible and watch the movie Left Behind where the rapture would happen. I knew it was real because the Bible talked about it, but I didn't want to make a change in my life. I didn't want to say goodbye to my friends or goodbye to my Catholic relatives. I wanted to please them, but my need became so great for a Savior, I finally said, I can't keep on anymore. I went to my house and I was sincere with my mom and told her, I can't keep on living this way knowing that I'm going to be left behind and not knowing what's going to happen if I die today. I don't know what's going to happen to me. My mom told me I could have assurance of salvation through Jesus Christ, that He had already paid for my sins on the cross, and that was a gift of God. All I had to do was simply receive it to believe in Him, and through faith I would be saved. I remember telling her, I don't know how to do that. So she helped me. I remember that night I was crying so much for joy and excitement over knowing I no longer had to worry about whether I was going to be left behind or what would happen to me. I knew that I was a child of God through Jesus Christ and that now I didn't have to worry about that. The thing that made me wonder about what would happen when I died was something that happened a few months before with my dad. He was drunk and was at a little store not far from our house. About midnight, my mom called me and said, we need to go and find your dad and see why he hasn't been back yet. And we sent, and he was drinking, and he told me, I'll give you a beer. I said, no, I'm not going to drink. And my mom told him, you're not going to make him drink if he doesn't want to. And dad was so mad, he went ahead of us. As we arrived at our house, there was my dad in front with a rifle saying, you're not coming in here. So we went for some family members, and they calmed him down. But I asked myself the question, what if I had died that instant? What if my dad not being his right mind, had fired and ended my life. I didn't have my confidence in Jesus. We don't know the day we're going to die. But one thing I know now is I know where I'm going the day I die. I would also like to tell you a little bit about how my life was afterwards and where the Lord has me now. It was definitely not easy, friends. Friends always influence you very much. I wanted to be a testimony to them, but many times I discovered it's necessary to separate ourselves from them if they're going to influence us more than we will influence them. It's the same with family members. Many of them would criticize me. When you place your faith in Christ, you're encouraged, but then discouragements and temptations come. I grew more focused on work than anything else. When I was 15 years old, I had two jobs, cutting tomatoes and cucumbers, so I was always carrying heavy crates. That only lasted a few months because I got a hernia and had to have emergency operation. I went through several months where I couldn't do anything. And after that, my dad told me, you can't stay here. You have to go to the States to study or something. The work here is too hard for you. So he sent me to California to live with one of my uncles who was Catholic. And I remember when I got there, I told my uncle about my faith. And he rejected it immediately and told me, while you're under my roof, you're not allowed to go to church. And the first year, however, was an encouragement because I was so lonely, I would seek the Lord's company. And my uncle wouldn't allow me to be with bad influences. The second year changed, though, because my uncle went to jail, and I had more freedom. I began to drive and make friends, and things were going well for me before I wanted to go back to Mexico. But now I thought, no, this is where my life is, my job, my school. Then the Lord used my dad to tell me, you have to come back to Mexico, or if you want to finish high school, you have to go to Arkansas to live with the Pearsons. 
And the person's, this is one of the pastors of the church. My answer at that was, no, I'm fine here with my job, my school, and I don't want to go. My dad said, okay, that day. But the next day he bought me a ticket and told me, your flight back to Mexico is in two weeks. Take it or leave it. It made me think a lot. I know my relationship with the Lord was not doing well because I knew I was being pulled more by my friends than I was pulling them. What a great, I was being pulled more by my friends than I was pulling them. And I knew I needed to attend church, so I said, okay, I'll obey you. And I came back to Mexico for two or three days before driving with the persons to Arkansas. And I didn't know them or English very well, but my mom had known them for years. And I knew that they had the fear of the Lord. That decision taken by my dad, which afterwards became my own decision, was one of the biggest decisions full of blessings in my life after having trusted Christ. For those of you who don't know the person family, it's really amazing how the Lord has used them in my life. It's amazing how close I am to them now. So he lived with them, actually, then for some time a year. It's kind of like a foreign exchange student coming and living. And when I need to make a decision in life, I will ask Nate and Lisa, that's mom and dad, for their counsel, because I know the wisdom they have, and I know they love me as a son. Literally, they treat me without distinction as a son. But if you ask Gracie, that's their daughter, She'll say they treat me better than they treat their own children. That's not true. But it has been amazing how they have influenced me to take a year to go to Jacksonville Bible College, which definitely changed my life. Something that I'm so grateful for is Nate's example in work. His focus is to work so we can serve others and be a blessing to others, not to get rich. So the Lord has blessed me hugely with great examples, not only like him, but also in his brothers. Some, I've got some brothers on pastoral staff there too. Um, I know it was nothing I deserved, nor was salvation anything I deserved, nor being in their lives. But the Lord has been totally good through Jesus Christ. I have become his child, and he has never let me go. Now, just to end, I want to encourage those who already know Jesus to seek those examples to follow. We know that Jesus should be our primary example. He should always be our focus. But I think there are also mature people in church who will help us grow spiritually and give us good counsel For those who have not trusted in Christ, I ask, what's detaining you? What's keeping you from giving your life to the Lord? He promises to open the door to everyone who calls, and he will give living water of eternal life. That would be the best decision that you could make in your life. He calls us today. Don't leave it for tomorrow, because we don't know if we'll be here. Seven months later, he was in that car accident that took him and his friends. This message that he gave could not have been more timely. His whole testimony was on the emphasis of the uncertainty of tomorrow. Just consider the things he said. He said, we don't know the day we're going to die. But one thing I know is that I know where I'm going the day I die. And he also said, God calls us today. Don't leave it for tomorrow because we don't know if we'll be here. I mean, he could have given no greater testimony than that, especially in light of his untimely death. And all of us would would give heed, would do well to give heed to his call. We don't know if we'll be here tomorrow. We don't know if we'll be here next month. Are you prepared for eternity? 
Is your soul trusting in Christ? Is your soul safe in Jesus, as Solomon's was? Well, this morning, as we turn our attention to the Scriptures, we're going to hear another testimony. This time, it's not Solomon's testimony. It's the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And his testimony is not going to emphasize the uncertainty of our lives. Rather, he's going to testify to, about the certainty of the resurrection. The certainty that Jesus Christ died upon the cross, was buried and raised three days later, and appeared to his disciples alive. And this gives us all hope beyond the grave. That we true in trusting in Jesus, we will rise to eternal life and be with him. And that's what Solomon's talking about. The one thing I know is I know where I'm going when I die. This is central, the death, burial, and resurrection of the gospel we preach. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And it's faith in the risen Christ that gives us hope beyond the grave. The title of my message this morning is a testimony to the resurrection. Because that's exactly what we see Paul doing in Acts chapter 26. So if you haven't opened there yet, I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. The past several weeks, we've been been tracking the Apostle Paul um, as he has come into Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 21 describes Paul coming into Jerusalem, uh, describes him offering up in the temple a purification offering where he was falsely accused by this mob of Jews who were there. And the, the Roman authorities came down and they saved him, but they didn't actually understand the nuances of what was happening, why they would hate him so badly. And so they detained him in jail in Jerusalem. Uh, But when a plot came up about his life uh, that was made known to these Romans, they transferred him to Caesarea. And uh, once in Caesarea, then the the Jewish people came and Paul gave his defense to Felix, the governor. And upon giving his defense, Paul, Felix didn't do anything. He didn't say, well, he's innocent or he's guilty or he should be set free or he should stay in prison rather just let him sit in prison for two years he stayed in prison until felix was removed from office and replaced by festus within a week of festus taking office he heard about paul's case and within another week paul was there standing before festus ready to give his defense against these jews who accused him of being a disturber of the peace and a leader of a false religion and a profaner of the temple now of course none of these things were true in, in Paul's life, he was not a disturber of the peace or a, a leader of a false religion. He didn't profane the temple. Paul denied them all. But Festus kind of seemingly, well, it doesn't seem like you're guilty here, but these guys are still accusing you. Would you like to go to Jerusalem? Paul said, no, I'm not going to Jerusalem. He knew that was his, his death sentence. And so Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. So Festus, after some counsel with his, his legal team, says, well, Paul, you've... you've Appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. There's one problem. Festus saw no wrong in what Paul had done, so delivering to Caesar without a formal charge was kind of unreasonable. Like, so like you bring him over there, but he's got no charge. And so Festus is in this predicament. Like, I don't know what to do with him. I don't know to send him, but he's got to be guilty of something. Fortunately for him, Agrippa, the king, happened to be in town. And when Festus told Agrippa about this case, Agrippa was, was interested. He said, I would like to hear the man himself. And so the next day, the trial was set up with, with King Agrippa and with his sister, wife, Bernice, and the military and the prominent men of the city. Now, I, I found online, here's a, here's a picture of what it may have been like. You see Festus there on the left. You see Agrippa in the middle. 
You see Bernice there on the right. You, you see the surrounding military. You see the, the surrounding prominent men in the city. And, and Paul was brought in. And when everything was there, first Festus spoke. And he gave the following speech in Acts chapter 25 and verse 24 and following. Festus said this, King Agrippa and all who are present with us. You see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I have found that he's done nothing deserving of death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And then in chapter 26, we read our text. And rather than reading the entire thing, just for the sake of time, I'm just going to just go through the text as we will, just opening it up, letting it unfolding it for you, just like those in those room in that room there had it unfolded to them as it went. So our text begins in verse 1 with Agrippa's invitation to Paul to speak. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. <coughs> And then Paul stretched out his hand and, and made his defense. Now, you've got to remember that this was after two years of being falsely imprisoned against these trumped-up charges. Paul finally has a, a chance to make his defense. And in verses 2 and 3, we see his introductory words. He said, I consider myself fortunate that's before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because... You are familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And it's a subtle slam on Felix and Festus, Roman governors, who weren't familiar with the ways of the Jews, being Romans. But Agrippa, being a Jew himself, would understand the intricacies of the Jews and of the prophets, would have a firsthand knowledge of the customs, having been through uh, the bar mitzvahs and the traditions and keeping the Passovers and the Seders and the Yom Kippurs. He would have done all of that. Though certainly secular, I mean, you can think about people in power today. Say our, our president is much like that, but professing Catholic and yet denying many of the tenets of the Catholic faith, yet going through the outward motions. That's much what Agrippa was like. Paul continues then to give his testimony, and he focuses upon the resurrection. And we see Paul basically making four statements. And my outline this morning is going to be basically these four statements that Paul makes. First of all, he says this, I was raised to believe in the resurrection. And, and that's the thrust of his argument in 1 through 4, or sorry, 4 through 8. So he says this, he says, verse 4, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, according to the strictest party of our religion, have I lived as a Pharisee. Paul says he was raised as a youth, um, a Jewish man from his youth, and he says he lived as a strict Pharisee, following all the ways of the Old Testament. And, and if you look through other passages of Scripture, you know Paul, how fastidious he was. In fact, he says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, according to the law, I was found blameless according to the law. So strict was he. And then Paul's key statement comes there in verse 6. He says, and now I stand trial on here today because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King Agrippa. And there's some drama here, right? Because Paul didn't issue 
didn't say the issue right at forth is the resurrection. Uh, rather, he raised the, the issue of what the resurrection means. And it, it means hope, what the resurrection means. I mean, and it means that we have hope of life after the grave because just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we too will follow him. He's the first fruits, and we'll be able to follow after. There is the hope that he was talking about. And then in verse 8, he brings the issue to the forefront as he looks around the room. He, he looks at Agrippa and Festus and Bernice and the military commanders and all the prominent men of the city. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And here he connects the resurrection with his hope. And he says, this is the hope that all the prophets have written to. This is God promised to all of us is the resurrection. And he says, that's what I'm on trial here today. Why do you think it's such incredible that someone would rise from the dead? Because you're denying that because that's all I'm saying is that someone rose from the dead and that we have hope after that. In some regards, I mean, Paul could have argued that the prophets, he, he did that. He already talked about the promise made by God, verse 6, to our fathers. This is what the prophets spoke about the resurrection. And, and then speaking to me about Jesus himself, he said Jesus prophesied and promised of the resurrection. And on top of that, you have the power of God. I mean, think about that. If God created the world, and if God created life, and if, if Adam right, was raised from the dust of the ground, that God just breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, could he not? Is he not powerful enough to raise people from the grave? Paul says, but that's why I'm standing before you today. Because I believe that God raises people from the dead. I believe in the power of God It's able to do this. And I believe in the prophets who prophesied of this resurrection. And you don't believe in the resurrection. Is it so impossible? Why don't you believe? I was raised to believe in the resurrection. But but, but Paul said it wasn't always the case. I think the thrust of verses 9 through 11, Paul is saying this, is that, but I didn't believe in the resurrection. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, this one who supposedly rose from the dead. And so I did in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And with these verses, Paul just speaks about his own wickedness. He was opposed to Christianity, hostile to Christians, arrested them, beat them, tortured them, trying to force them to blaspheme the name of God, locked them up in prison, and even casted votes to have them put to death. Maybe he's referring to Stephen, a reference to Acts chapter 7, when he was standing by giving hearty approval to this stoning of Stephen, a a righteous man proclaiming Jesus. And if you catch the flow of Paul's argument in his testimony, it's, it's really because he didn't believe what the Christians were saying, that he was going after them and attacking them. Right? They were following this Messiah that supposedly had risen from the dead, and, and Paul was against that. He said, no, no, that's, that's not the case. And he was against it, not only intellectually, <clears throat> but it was a passion that raged within him against the Christians. Look again at verse 11. He says there that he had a raging fury against them. Raging fury. Out of control anger against the Christians. Right? For those kids who watch Dude Perfect, you know, what, what's it called? It's called Rage Monster or whatever. 
and he starts throwing things, smashing things. That's what Paul was. Sinful, out of control, anger. And then something happened. He met Jesus. And he's going to tell us about that uh, beginning in verse 12. But before we get to that, I just want to, want to pause a little bit. This is the flow of all Christian testimonies. I used to live like this in sin and wickedness and rebellion against the Lord. But then I met Jesus and everything changed. I, I believed and trusted in the Lord. I repented of my sins. I experienced forgiveness of sins. And, and Christ then has come into my life and transformed me, giving me desires for his people and giving me desires for walking righteously and according to his word. I have delighted myself in the Lord. He's given me the desires of my heart. I sought after him. I pursued him right, for the joy that, that it is to follow Jesus. That's the testimony of a Christian, what I was before, how God transformed me, and what I am afterwards. Do you have such a testimony? Can you say that? This is what I was like before as a Christian. And this is how I met Jesus. And, and this is how God has changed me. If you don't have a testimony, it may just be you're not a Christian today. Because every Christian has this testimony. If you haven't placed your trust in Christ, I encourage you to do that today. Again, think of Solomon, right? God calls us today. Don't leave it for tomorrow because we don't know if we'll be here. Scripture says our our life is like a vapor. You go out today, it's warming up, but when it's cold, just all gone. That's our life. We don't know if we're going to be here tomorrow. Repent. Trust in Christ. Let his forgiveness overwhelm you and then walk in newness of life. Well, beginning of verse 12, Paul tells us how exactly it is that he met Jesus. And here's my statement. And then Paul says, I, I was raised to believe in the resurrection and, and I didn't believe in the resurrection. And now Paul says, I became a witness to the risen Christ. In his raging fury, Paul's persecuting Christians in all the cities around Jerusalem And he says that in this connection, verse 12, he says, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the high priests. So he had the authority of the high priests. He had, in fact, even had their blessing, the commission. You go and you find these Christians. And you take them and you arrest them and you beat them and you force them to blaspheme. You bring them here to Jerusalem and we'll try them here and find them as heretics. And then he says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when, he had fall, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise. And stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins 
and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, these words draw us back to Acts chapter 9. If you know, Acts chapter 9 tells us a story about Paul encountering the, the living Jesus on the road to Damascus. This takes us back to Acts 22 when Paul told this story again. This is the third time in the book of Acts in which he has told this story. And, and the details of what took place in, in Acts 9 are, are almost identical here with the, the details that Paul shares here. Paul is traveling the road to Damascus, authority to kill these Christians, bringing them male or female, bound to Jerusalem, tried as heretics, shamed, beaten, and perhaps put to death. But on that road, in the high noon of the afternoon sun, Paul and his companions experienced this light that was brighter than the sun. So you just think about the brightest noonday. The sun is over, and it's just as bright as can be. There was this other light that was far brighter than that. And all who were with Paul fell down because of that great light. And Paul heard the words of Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, first of all, right, persecuting me. I'm not persecuting you. Like, who are you? Like, I'm not persecuting you. I'm, I'm going to get these Christians, these people following the way, these evil people. And eventually, like more details in Acts chapter 9, he reveals himself as Jesus is, is what he does. And um, he says that even here in, in chapter, in verse 15. But he says this, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, the goads are sticks with sharp points and hooks right to prod and direct animals they should go particularly goats were used with the oxen right when they're plowing they didn't want to go you could poke them poke them in their backside and like whoa and they and they get on you could scratch them and kind of kind of get them today we use cattle prods long rods and animals will obey those pretty quickly and and here we get a sense where, where paul was work, god was working in the heart of paul like prodding him and he was resisting it, resisting it, doing what he was doing, but knowing kind of that it was wrong. It was hard. That was Paul's heart. It was, it was hard. But with the bright light, Paul's attention, Jesus reveals himself there in verse 15. And then he commissions him. And he commissions him basically in verse 16 to be a servant and a witness. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness. He's appointed to be a witness. Does that sound familiar? I mean, I hope it does. This is the theme of Acts. Paul was told to be a witness, and Paul's commission is our commission to be the witness of Jesus. In fact, how many times have you heard this in preaching through Acts? You heard me repeat, this is the call of Christ upon all of our lives, is it would be a witness for Him. Are you doing it? This is called, Jesus says, okay, this is what I want you to do. Be my witness. Are you being a witness for Jesus? Even Solomon, right? Before his work, before his dad, before... It's interesting, at Solomon's funeral, if you would watch the funeral, when uh, uh, Nate Persons, I think, gave the, the, the funeral address of him, and basically he said, um, you know, you, you guys at work, how many times you heard G, um, Solomon talk to you about Jesus? A lot. You school classmates, how many times you heard Solomon talk about Jesus? A lot. Like he was being a witness for Jesus. And this is what we are called to do. And I challenge you last week to ask someone what they know about Jesus. Just to gauge the world. Because from Festus probably we didn't know anything about that. Well, I asked a a question to someone this week. 
I was a conversation with a non-church goer, and we were talking about someone who was sick and in the hospital, and so kind of we're talking, they kind of transitioned to spiritual things a little bit because sickness and end-of-life issues are are right there, and and so my transition, I just said this, you know what, I got a strange question for you. Think about, I challenge you guys with this, and I said, what do you know about Jesus? And I can't remember exactly what this guy said, but he said something like like this. He said, well, I I know some, you know, I I know about, about him, yeah. And I said, no, no, what exactly do you know? He says, well, I know, I know enough. I mean, I, you know, you, you know kind of about him. And um, he said, but I don't go to church or anything. But, you know, I've heard, I've read some. And I said, you know what, I, I'm interested in your church attendance. And we could talk about that sometime. But, but not right now. I, I just want to know, what do you know about Jesus? I'm curious. He said, well, you know, it's um, kind of like you read about someone in, in a book you read about someone in a book and you know a little bit about him. I know a little bit about him. That's almost exactly how my conversation went with this guy. How much do you think this guy knows about Jesus? He wouldn't even say his name. He just knows about him. So I look forward to following up my conversation, following up in, in coming days. And I challenge you all to do that. Let me do that this week. Just say, what do you know about Jesus? See what people know particularly like non-churchgoers, because we have a world around us that knows nothing about Jesus, and we need to be witnesses to them, to tell them about Jesus. He calls us to be his witnesses. And when Jesus commissioned Paul on the road to Damascus, he told him he would go to the Gentiles. Look at verse 18. He says, you go to the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you, and here's his purpose, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what Jesus is calling us to do, to be his witnesses, that, that, that eyes might be opened up, that, that people may turn from their sin, from darkness to light, that they may turn from their bondage to Satan, to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, to receive forgiveness of sins and to receive a place among those who are sanctified, a place with God forever. It's our calling to tell others about Jesus Christ, that they might repent and believe and receive forgiveness of sins. Are you doing this? Who'd you talk to this week? Who'd you talk to last week? Who'd you talk to this month? Maybe you can just form things in your mind. I had several conversations with people this week about Jesus. One guy, I even shared Solomon's testimony. I told him about it, and he was interested. I even texted it to him. Why don't you read this? This is pretty powerful. It was appropriate me, <clears throat> even another time, to invite another guy to church. He said he'd come. I mean, we'll see him sometime soon. Are you being obedient to the call of Jesus upon your life? Uh, I, for one, I'm thankful that Paul was. That's what we see in verse 19. Look at verse 19 and 20. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and to all the gent- also to all the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. This is basically Paul's fourth statement. He says, I was obedient to the risen Christ. Not only become a, a witness to Jesus, seeing him alive and well, but I became obedient to Jesus. I went to the Gentiles just like Jesus told me to. I started right there in Damascus. And if you read in Acts chapter 9, you see the first thing. On his road to Damascus, he's converted. He believes in Christ. And then he goes right to the synagogue and begins talking about Jesus is the Christ. 
They didn't want to associate with him there because they knew he was coming to arrest them and thinking like he was a, you know, a KGB, like infiltrating the church, like in the former Soviet Union or something like that. They were scared. But then he went down to Jerusalem where the apostles were and he continued to do the same thing. He preached Christ there. And then he traveled around and expanded out. And if we had the time, we could review these things. We've taken months, years. We've been in Acts almost three years now, two and a half years. We've been in Acts just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the whole, through the whole book. Acts 9 records him preaching in Damascus and Jerusalem and then his missionary journey beginning in chapter 13, <clears throat> his first journey, 13 and 14, and his second journey, 15, 16, 17, 18, and then again, 18, 19, 20. All these missionary journeys just to the Gentiles. And the reason why the Gospels reached us is because Paul reached those Gentiles who reached and reached and reached, and now the Gospels spread throughout the whole world. Calling people. I love, look what he's calling him to do. Repent, verse 20. Turn to God. Performing deeds in keeping with your repentance. That's what it means to be a believer in Christ. It's not just some mental assent to God, but, but a belief and trust and a turning from your sin. And demonstrating your repentance was real. Like, I've really, God, forsaken those things. I hate those things, but I love you, and I love righteousness. And I want to follow after you. And then comes the heart of Paul's defense. Verse 21. He says, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. The Jews hate the fact that I'm spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. The Jews hate the fact that I'm preaching this risen Savior. That's why they're trying to kill me. They hated Jesus when he was upon the earth. They killed him. He rose again. And they still hate him. And they hate me. And they want me dead. That's what he's saying. Yet he says, I'm only doing what was taught. I was taught in the Bible. Look at verse 22. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And this is our message, is it not? That Christ Jesus has suffered on the cross, but that he was dead and buried? But he rose from the dead and he, he shines forth the light for all to see that, that we might turn from darkness to this light and be saved from our sin and might experience forgiveness of sins. This is the message that I'm preaching. That's what Paul says. At this point, he was interrupted. Verse 24. As he was saying these things, kind of like right in the middle of his message, got cut short. I'm sure Paul would have continued on and spoken as long as they would have given an opportunity. Festus. As he was saying these things in defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind, and your great learning is driving you mad. That's what he's saying. My words weren't quite right. I got there, right? You're out of your mind. Great learning is driving you out of your mind. You, Paul, you are crazy for believing these things. It's absurd that someone rise from the dead. What are you talking about, Paul? Note, this is Festus, the Roman governor. He doesn't know the scriptures. He doesn't know the power of God. He thinks the message of this risen Savior is crazy talk, like many Americans do today. We Americans, right, think we're all scientific, right? Dead people don't rise from the dead. We've never seen that in the laboratory. Therefore, since we haven't seen it in the laboratory, it didn't happen Any talk about Jesus, a man rising from the dead, is fantasy. That's what Festus was telling Paul. 
You're believing a fantasy, Paul. But Paul said, verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. And maybe there's a a subtle hint there that Paul was, was the one who was crazed in a loud voice. He himself was out of his mind. But Paul responded rightly, gently. A gentle answer turns away wrath and just, just says, no, I'm not out of my mind, but I am speaking true and rational words, even calling him most excellent Festus, right? Being very respectful to him, just saying, I'm in my right mind. He said, for the king, right? So I'm talking to you, Festus, but the king was right over here. The, the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe, right? And there Festus responded, and then Paul kind of gave it right back and approached the king and says, well, I'm just saying what the prophets say. And king, you, you believe, don't you? And it's here that, that Paul discerned the difference between the Roman governor and the Jewish king, the, the governor just attacked his character and his, his sanity. But anyone standing there would have seen that he was not insane. He was in his right mind. He just recognized his sanity. The king, however, being a Jewish man, knew the scriptures. He knew they prophesied of a suffering servant who would rise from the dead. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16. And Paul said to the king, he says, King, I know you know the prophets. And I know even that you profess belief in these prophets. I know that you can attest to the truthfulness of everything that I've told you. You can, in fact, argue on my behalf that I'm not crazy. And you can argue on the fact from the scriptures that that these things are no secrets, no mystery. I'm merely preaching the end to which the prophets prophesied about, O king. And then Agrippa, verse 28, says that famous line. He says, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time... You would persuade me to be a Christian? And I wish the Bible came with tone. Because we don't know exactly how this was said. Was it said with condescension? With condescension? Mocking Paul, that thinking that he could persuade him in such a short time. <laughs> you think you can persuade me in such a short time to be a Christian? Absolutely no way. Or maybe Agrippa said it with hope. But in a short time, perhaps he would be a Christian. In a short time? You persuade me to be a Christian? Like, maybe maybe a little bit more? Maybe I need more time? We don't know. But, but Paul just basically took him for his word. He, he said this, verse 29. He said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all those who hear me this day, and it's all the military, that's all of the, um, the, the popular people in the city, the, the commanding people in the city, that all those might become such as I am. Right? Believing in Christ, trusting in Christ. So except for these chains. And remember when he's been speaking this whole time, he's got chains. He's a he's a prisoner with shackles on. Right? He's got shackles around his belt. He's got feet here. He's, he's talking bound as a prisoner. Bold as a lion is he. And at those words, we said, I wish that you were like I wish that everyone here would be like I am. The king rose the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, so this is like a private council back in the judges' chambers, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. So he is, he is innocent. He could have been set free, but he appealed to Caesar. And then chapter 7, we're going to see him being sent to Rome as a prisoner. We'll, we'll pick that up. 
next time. But I, I finished with one observation. I want you to see Paul's evangelistic endeavor in the king's court. How successful was Paul in his evangelism? He didn't persuade Festus. He didn't persuade Agrippa. I doubt that Bernice was moved either. And we know nothing about the crowds that heard him. Perhaps some came to faith, perhaps not. We have no assurance that anyone came to faith. And I just say this, in your being a witness, realize that there are many times that people won't believe. Right? Like, I think 99% of the time I put out stuff and it's just on hard ground. Smiling, happy. And that's America. America is hard ground. People smile it, receive it, and are polite. But most people I talk to are, are, are just like Festus, are just like Agrippa. Steve, you're out of your mind. And I think it's the reality of evangelism in our culture. It's a lot of sowing. It's a lot of spreading it out there. Many won't come to faith, but perhaps some will. If God delights to open our eyes and bring revival in our land, that will happen. But I just say this, don't be disheartened. Don't be disheartened. God calls us just to be my witnesses. Just, just like Paul. I mean, if Paul had power to change lives, he would have gone, zap Festus and you believe, and zap Agrippa and you believe. Or if he'd have been wise enough to be able to say exactly what they need to do to believe, they would have believed. But it's not. That's in the power of God to change people's lives. Paul just calls us to be his witness. We, we don't have the power to change our lives. So what do we do have the power to do? We have the power to pray to the one who can open eyes. And, and break hearts, and change and transform people. They bring them up to be new creations. That's why we pray to the Lord. That's why we pray for unsaved friends and relatives. Pray that God, may you open the eyes of the blind, that they might see the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Christ. It was Paul. Saul persecuting people. And God opened his eyes. If God opens Paul's eyes, God can open anyone's eyes. You just need to be bold then to speak the truth to them that they might repent and believe in the gospel. So let's pray. Father, I pray for those here today who don't know Christ, that they would repent and believe in Christ. There may be people here like Agrippa or Festus. Agrippa who played the religious game for years, but didn't believe outwardly. Festus, right? Just seeing things as crazy, crazy talk. Father, I would pray if there are people here today, they'd repent today before it's too late because, as Solomon said, we don't know if we'll be here tomorrow. Also pray, O oh God, for our boldness. I pray, O oh God, that you'd teach us to pray. As I know many times I going places, I'm just praying and pleading for you to give opportunities for the gospel. And you faithfully do that. You faithfully provide opportunities to be a witness for Jesus in whatever way, whatever little one sentence or five sentences or a discussion, whatever it is. I'd stir in our hearts to be able to be witness to you and merely in obedience to you and obedience to your call. And I pray that you would bless and honor our, our time as we seek to do that together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.